Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Let's please give a warm round of applause to these two. It's working. So I first met uh, Matt back in the 80s, and he had this thing called uh, Club Commotion, Commotion International, which was this incredible collective in San Francisco that was a warehouse space with a very uh, inexpensive recording studio, a stage, and a lot of touring bands uh, coming through town, especially punk bands, politically charged bands, could play there, get paid 100% of the door. Uh, if you were a local band, you wanted to make an album, you rec- could record there very cheaply. Uh, Matt was also uh, fronting a band at that time called The Looters that was a very politically charged band. And so I've known Matt for a long time, and he sent me the manuscript of this book uh, about a year ago and asked me to read it. And uh, you know, I wrote a back cover blurb where I basically said, you know, this was an incredible combination of music uh, of, of the San Francisco area. But more importantly, Matt has weaved in, uh, as I say here, uh, he comes from every angle imaginable. Uh, Black power, the Vietnam War movement, the media, the new left, feminism, sexual revolution. So Matt was not only there, but he interviewed, you know, dozens of people who were there. And before we begin, I asked Matt on the phone the other day, I said, Matt, if we could, if we could play just a song or two that sort of capture the era, what should we play to set the tone? And he said, I really want to hear the Chambers Brothers, Time Has Come Today. So now being the record geek that I am, I found a rare mixed single that's a little different. Has some, so we'll, we'll give you a minute or two of this, and then we'll let Matt do his thing.
that's that. I'm going to let Matt sort of ramble on for a bit and do his thing, and then he and I are going to uh, talk a little bit back and forth, and uh, we'll see where this goes. All right. Thank you, Matt. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that song and why it's important uh, in a minute. And um, what I'm going to do in a condensed form is talk about why I wrote this book and the questions that arose in the course of researching it, um, and then hopefully other questions will arise you know, that pertain to the contents of the book or what I'm going to tell you. Um, I live in Switzerland, and in 2007, um, the 40th anniversary of the Summer of Love, uh, there was a deluge of news media stuff, mainly newspapers, but also documentaries and whatnot, talking about um, what happened in San Francisco in 1967. And that, at, at first, actually surprised me. Uh, 10,000 miles away, 40 years after the fact, you know, the farthest thing from, from my mind was thinking about San Francisco in the 60s. But obviously it was important. Uh, this was front-page news in The Guardian in, in, uh, in England, but it was also in German and French and Italian. And I noticed fairly quickly that a number of terms would appear untranslated regardless of the language hippie, flower power, acid rock, summer of love and so on and um, it began to occur to me that actually not only were these terms themselves all media creations and not in the, not uh, authentic in the sense that they were being used in other words they were being presented as if people in my generation participants in the, in the events had actually coined these terms or used them to refer to themselves but that they were being actually presented as historical fact and indeed I quickly f discovered that they were actually appearing in history books uh, so it wasn't just news media stuff it was actually the way history is being constructed and that might have been the basis for um, an article or an essay, you know, kind of exposing this is the way it really was. Um, and, you know, outrage can carry you so far. But, um, in fact, when I started to research and started to read into uh, the record, I discovered very quickly that uh, this was an erasure that was taking place and had been uh, based on a long decades-long um, uh, pre presentation of history. And there were two things about that. One was a, a, an odd division between history on the one side and musicology or cultural studies or, or uh, rock music journalism on the other. Um, and in, in, the, in the case of this division, I discovered after reading about 30 or 40 books, that it was a pretty ironclad rule that histories were written, and this is not a judgment of how good the histories were or accurate or well-researched or not, but just the fact that they were histories. Um, would, they, would be, they would be talking about political organizations, individuals, particular events, you know, whether it was the Black Panther Party or the anti-war movement or the farm workers or uh, the women's liberation movement, whatever. And there would be some mention, generally speaking, some mention of music and how important it was to a generation and so on, but that was about it. And in terms of the music books, uh, of which there are literally thousands, um, they would generally uh, and, and pretty pretty much comprehensively mention the turbulent times in which this music was performed. There would be some reference, usually, about the anti-Vietnam War movement or the or the you know Black Power or civil rights or something like that. But no no really in-depth analysis of the connection or or relationship between these these two things, and that in itself 
uh, to me, uh, represented a, um, a miscarriage or a distortion of what had actually happened. Because in my own experience, and I thought in the historical record, the relationship between music, and not only music, but other art forms such as posters and murals and, and uh, uh, theater, there was a relationship between the movements that were happening at the time and the, 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 arts, the art forms, the expressions, the, the, the content, as well as the form of the art, that was really inseparable. It was impossible to talk about one without the other. Uh, so that was that was one aspect. The other aspect was that this repetition of these terms, this constant re repetition of hippie, flower power, acid rock, and so on and so forth, and a whole host of other terms like that, were actually designed to replace certain things. They weren't just um, phrases that had been coined by journalists or whatever. Um, and then popularized and picked up by other journalists and so on and so forth, which happens a lot anyway. They were actually designed to replace something else. And these, this something else were the terms that were actually in common use by everyone, and certainly in the Bay Area and I think actually ultimately nationwide. Um, and these terms were the system, the movement, consciousness, and liberation. And by the system, it was, comp it was not only the, the capitalist system, it was basically all systems of authority, including <laughs> the church, institutions of higher learning, of course the military and the police, and it also for many people included the Soviet Union, the other, the other uh, side of the Cold War that had been going on for, since World War II. Um, in terms of the movement, the movement definitely was a, 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 an all-embracing term which evolved from, of course, the labor movement uh, prior to World War II, but then the civil rights movement which had begun flourishing in the early 60s, and the peace movement which was beginning to take off in response to the escalation of the war in Vietnam, the farm workers movement in the Central Valley of California, and so on. Um, but the movement itself was this all-embracing term that could include anyone from a, 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 a member of a GI coffee house uh, advising, uh, you know, people about uh, the draft, or it could be someone who's in, in a, uh, you know, in the anti-war movement and the Black Panther Party, anyone. It was this broad general term, and actually uh, representative of that term was a newspaper that was launched in San Francisco in 1965, appropriately called The Movement. And it was uh, initiated by SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who was based mainly in the South, uh, to coordinate with the United Farm Workers and the anti-war movement in the Bay Area. Um, and this, move, this newspaper actually was a forerunner of the underground press, which would spring up shortly thereafter, the Berkeley Barb and other things that became known as the underground press. Um, a, very, a huge influential phenomenon, but the movement really was the forerunner of that and, and included in its newspapers, and you can see the newspapers online today, news about what was happening in the Haight-Ashbury, the Tenderloin, the Mission District, all the parts of San Francisco, not isolated from each other, but connected together. And that included theater, that included music, that included mural art, and so on and so forth. So that, that was the movement. The, in terms of consciousness, consciousness obviously is a, uh, is a word in the English language that goes, you know, is very old, but it's specific um, uh, application at this time uh, had come into popular usage around um, consciousness expanding 
the, the exploration of everything from Eastern religion to LSD that was very popular in 1965 and as people might recall was a legal drug and, uh, and had, had, was widely disseminated by, in a rather non-commercial way by people like Owsley. Um, in any case, consciousness raising, uh, consciousness expanding gave way to consciousness raising in, the, in 1970 with the birth of the women's liberation movement and by that time this, this focus on consciousness, the, the necessity to either expand or raise one's consciousness was, you might say, the, the duty or the task of a whole generation. And finally, the question of liberation. Liberation, the, the term, um, was being popularized at that time by the National Liberation Front. People might recall the Viet Cong, as they were called by the U.S. news media. The National Liberation Front was fighting U.S. imperialism in Vietnam, and so the, this this term, uh, liberation, was in constant circulation, not only in the news media, but it was picked up by following the, the, the black power phase of the civil rights movement, and in turn, the black liberation struggle, which then was followed by the women's liberation movement, gay liberation, and so on and so forth. So the term had a, a substance and a, a definition, if you want to say, that was being embraced by an extremely broad section of the population in this country, and even in other parts of the world as well. So knowing that these, these kinds of erasures were taking place and that this was actually the result, or the, you might say the goal, of writing 40 years after the fact that you know, all that happened in San Francisco was a bunch of uh, you know, white middle class spoiled brats who were appearing in Golden Gate Park to you know, get high and, and freak out, um, which incidentally was exactly the way they were being portrayed at the time by Ronald Reagan. And those who recall the, the propaganda about what was happening in San Francisco at that time, the governor of California, Ronald Reagan, was exactly saying that it was white middle class spoiled brats and their permissive parents that were causing the breakdown of society. Um, anyway, going beyond those questions and those terms and these, these you, you might say, the difference between um, simply being outraged and wanting to set the record straight to actually investigating what really did happen, uh, what really was underneath the surface of these uh, events, uh, three questions emerged. Uh, one was, why music? Second was, why revolution? And the third was, why San Francisco? And in order to answer those questions, of course, that, that was what the research was about. That was what interviewing you know, dozens of people, as Pat said, was all about. Because it wasn't just a question of my experience. You know, two people can witness the same murder and have a completely different story of it. That doesn't authenticate the, the uh, you know, uh, what actually transpired. It certainly, it might give an interesting perspective, but my purpose was to actually do battle with the distortions and, and, uh, and, and lies that, and falsehoods that were being perpetuated. Um, and in terms of why music, this, this is a very specific usage of the term music. Uh, why music? It's not why music, why is there air? It's why music <laughs> for, four, for four very specific reasons. Um, in the 60s, music became the preeminent of all the arts. And this is something that has, was remarked upon by many historians as well, so it's not just my idea. But what that actually means is that prior to the 60s, cinema could be considered the most, you know, the most dominant art form, the most influential art form, certainly in terms of the popular arts. And of course, historically, 
Um, as Percy Bysshe Shelley said, the great revolutionary English poet, the, the poet is the unacknowledged legislator of the world. This is a, uh, you know, the poet, poetry being the queen of all the arts has long been, been held. And of course it was held by the Beats, who f were forerunners of the 60s in San Francisco itself. But the reasons why music became preeminent of the, all the arts and the significance of that was was not just the fact that music became the voice of a generation, the voice through which a generation spoke as opposed to what they consumed or what they were listening to, um, was that it was all music. It was music as such. In other words, it wasn't rock music alone. Um, and this is uh, embodied in the posters that we included in the book. The posters in, the, in, the, in this book are not there just as illustrations. They're actually evidence of, of what transpired. And um, and this, this means that what was happening at the, at the film auditorium uh, or the Avalon Ballroom or out in the parks free every day or every week uh, for, for a number of years was a wild melange of different forms that defied music industry norms as to how music should be purveyed and consumed. So that on one night you would have Charles Lloyd and you would have uh, Country Joe and the Fish and Bolasete. On another night you would have you know Lothar and the Hand People with, uh, <laughs> with Ross on Roland Kirk or you'd have Sun Ra followed by the mothers or something like that. And this was a commonplace. This was not atypical. This was typical. And of course it was carried further by freeform radio, which also began at this time in San Francisco and went between 65 and, and, uh, and 73. And, and so this was a, a phenomenon that educated, if you want to say, or elevated the consciousness of an entire audience, uh, an entire generation to music as such. Not necessarily a style. And in incidentally, this is where we come into what but the significance of Time Has Come Today is. Because Time Has Come Today was done by a black singing group named the Chambers Brothers who had previously been a folk group who sang uh, for the civil rights movement, basically. They were very popular um, as, as folk artists. Um, when they you know, took on rock and roll or, or the, the electric, electrification of their sound and wrote this song after being influenced by what was happening in San Francisco, their record label did not want to record it because it was considered a white song by a black band. They wanted them to sell this to a white group who would play it because that's the way the music industry thinks. White, black, radio stations, nightclubs, charts, the whole thing. This is the way it, the, the music industry had been built from the very beginning, going back to the, the minstrel shows and, and you know the, the coon songs of an earlier era. And it was going to be perpetuated. And this is, again, a matter of fact. The documentation is in the book. But I spoke and interviewed the producer of that song, um, who told me when, when, when he brought the, the head of... Columbia Records, Clive Davis, down to the studio to hear this song. He said, this is great, but they can't do it. <laughs> and the other thing was that the song was 11 minutes, 5 seconds long. It was way too long. You know, 3 minute limit and all that stuff. So this is a classic example of what was happening when music as such became the, 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 what, what compelled people to listen. Um, and and what, what people were participating in. Uh, the second is that as a result of that, music as an instrument of change, in other words, not just as a herald of change, in other words, traditionally or certainly throughout history, music has heralded change, it has an, an announced change, whether it was in revolutionary songs or calling for, for freedom and so on, but this was 
what a generation began to, to view music as was the way change was going to be made. Now that may be, appear to us today as delusional. And in, in many ways it was extremely uh, wishful thinking, to say the least. But that was in fact how many millions of people viewed it. And that's of course represented by such events as Woodstock and so on and so forth, which is the, you know, you might say the ultimate representation of that in our culture today. Um, but finally, and this is the most important point of all, is that in the course of my uh, investigation research, I came upon a book by Kenyan novelist and, and dramatist uh, Ngugi Watiango uh, called Penpoints, Gunpoints, and Dreams. This was written in 1998, and in this he theorizes art's rivalry with the state. And when I read this, a light bulb went on because it, ex it described exactly in great detail what had actually transpired in San Francisco in 1965. Because what Ngugi was talking about was that the rivalry with the state was not just over a government suppressing uh, the content of speech. In other words, it was not necessarily censoring the lyrics to songs or, or saying that you can't write that that novel or you can't perform that play, but it was seeking control over performance space. It was making sure that you could not perform that piece. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly how this all started in San Francisco and why the year 1965 is so important. Because when the San Francisco Mime Troupe went out in the, in the parks, they'd been doing it since 1962, performing radical theater, they were challenging the laws governing public performance in, in the city's parks. And they chose to actually confront the, the, the law after you know many legal battles, trying to get permits and whatever. They couldn't get the permit, so they went out and did the play anyway. Uh, and of course, were arrested. Ron Davis, the founder of the meme troupe, was in fact arrested. And from that, Bill Graham, um, who late went on to become a rock impresario you've all heard of, um, was their business manager. And he decided that to raise money for the for the court case, they would have to have what were called appeals. There were subsequently three appeals. And these appeals included um, a sh the first one uh, in, in November uh, 1965, uh, included Allen Ginsberg, Jefferson Airplane, a, the one, a primitive light show, and so on and so forth. And the whole scene was, in a sense, set by this model, if you want to say. And that joined with the family dog initiating a similar event earlier, uh, again, with a, a group of, of, of diverse musicians, with a primitive light show that had been pioneered at San Francisco State, and, and so on and so forth. And the model, if you want to say, was created, which would then, of course, proliferate and expand and develop over the, over the course of the next few years. The main thing about the rivalry of the state, however, in this context, in the context of the 60s, is that it's my contention that the music industry is an arm of the state. In other words, it's not private enterprise the way it's portrayed. It actually does the state's bidding. And the violation of its norms, the, the, way it, the, the structures of the music industry as it was being um, challenged by all of this different kind of music being played on the same stage and the song format itself actually disappeared. I mean, just an example is the Grateful Dead's second album, Anthem of the Sun. You can't call it songs. I mean, it's just a long, it's, it's two sides of continuous music. And this was common. This is just one example of, of dozens, if not hundreds, of albums that were produced at that time where the idea of a song is stretched beyond any, any uh, conceivable measure of definition, and certainly three minutes was out. Um, in, in terms of the question, why revolution, 
the reason that I, that question came to my mind is that it was important to me to understand why people, myself included, thought that revolution was going to happen immediately, not some sometime down the road, but now, in our lifetime. And there were actually reasons. We weren't completely deluded. Um, and um, the, the, basically there were four. One was that ghettos were on fire. And what people have often forgotten is that from 1964 until the early 70s, every single year, dozens of cities, if not hundreds in some cases, some years, would erupt in armed rebellion of, and I say armed rebellion, meaning people living in city centers, largely black, and, and in many cases young people were armed and actually, in a, in a sense, rising up against the system. And this led to, of course, the classic uh, was in 1967 itself in Detroit, huge urban uprising. The, 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 the military, the U.S. military had to come into the streets of cities in the United States. And this, of course, gave the appearance of insurrection. It did seem to be unstoppable. In fact, the, the phrase, the long, hot summer, was coined at that time to describe these events. They were predictable because the, the people were incensed and were in an insurrectionary mood. The second is uh, GI resistance. And this really by 1967 um, had, had erupted into a major mutinous situation in the armed forces of the United States. So the fraggings had begun, that means you know soldiers killing their officers and mutinies, people refusing to fight and so forth were so widespread that actually by 1969 uh, Colonel Robert Heinel wrote a, 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 an essay in Armed Forces Review that, describing the collapse of the armed forces in, in Vietnam. Um, but more importantly than just the resistance of Vietnam was the return of all these soldiers. They came back from, from Vietnam and they were predominantly working class people of all ethnicities going, distributing themselves back into their homes in Montana or Alabama or wherever they came from with radical ideas. And so you're talking about people who've been trained to fight coming back into the United States and going marching in large numbers to the Capitol building to throw their, their the medals that they've earned on the steps of the Capitol building at Dewey Canyon 3, for example, and joining organizations like the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, which were avowedly revolutionary organizations. This certainly gives the appearance of a breakdown of the oppressive arm of government, which is necessary to keep it in power. The third reason, of course, was that there were, in fact, revolutions going on in, in, in the rest of the world. In China, the Chinese Cultural Revolution was taking place and going full blast and had an enormous impact in the United States. Uh, for example, uh, I, in, I discovered that uh, China Books, which was its, the, the only legal arm, uh, legal place that could sell a literature from China, had sold 250,000 red books by 1968 and over a million by 1973. And a lot of those books were being sold by the Black Panther Party to raise money. So it, there's, a, there's a very direct connection here between what was happening in China and what was happening in San Francisco and for that matter throughout the country. Of course the, the other examples are Cuba which had, had a revolution in 1959 and generated enormous support um, without, th throughout the United States and above all Vietnam itself and the uh, Vietnamese people were indeed the fulcrum of history and their struggle which was so long had gone, gone back to first the French then the Japanese then the French again then the United States and this this obviously represent or symbolize something that young people in America as well as other parts of the world were aspiring to and finally 
1968. And 1968 is so closely associated with the worldwide revolution that I personally have read five books with that as the, as the title. That's it. The author knows that you, when, you, when you say 1968, it's going to mean, you know, Tommy Jones and John Carlos at the Mexico Olympics. It's going to mean the Cultural Revolution in China. It's going to be May, uh, you know, the May, May events in Paris that almost collapsed the French government. It's going to mean Prague Spring and the, the rising of young people against the Soviet uh, repression there. It's going to mean all of that and more um, in, in one moment, the uh, uh, historical moment of which San Francisco is obviously a, a very important part. Um, and then finally, that leads us to why San Francisco, and then we can throw, throw open the, the floor. Um, why San Francisco in some ways is the easiest to answer, and yet the most obscure. And part of that's because of what's happened since. But why San Francisco um, would attract uh, people in 1966-67, this period that the Summer of Love is supposed to represent, um, is an important question in itself. In other words, in that short time frame, it is true that a disproportionate number of young people did come to San Francisco. Um, and it is true that the Council of the Summer of Love was formed in April including the Oracle newspaper and the Haight-Ashbury, the family dog who were putting on shows, and the Diggers who were a, a, a group, uh, activist group in the Haight-Ashbury that were trying to organize uh, people there uh, in a political direction, and the Straight Theater, which was a sort of an under, not an underground space, but an alternative to Bill Graham and, and uh, you know the Avalon Ballroom and so forth. They organized a Council for the Summer of Love, and they were definitely trying to uh, capture the, you, you might say, the situation that they were faced in, in a, and take it in a positive direction. Because what is written out of the Summer of Love mythology is the fact that the cops were coming, sweeping Hate Street on a regular basis. And the Summer of Love was designed to protect people against police violence. This had begun in uh, earlier, actually, but after the human being, the night of the human being in January. 1967, the police had swept Hate Street. The drummer in my band was arrested for standing on the corner for assaulting a police officer and so on. This was common. So the Summer of Love was very much directed at something else. At the same time, it was trying to give some kind of direction to all these young people who were flooding into the into the city but it's it's not the way it is portrayed in the in the in the mythology at all. And in fact that is only one aspect of the reputation San Francisco had, and it's very important to put even that into a larger context, because San Francisco had a re reputation as being a haven for lunacy and a hotbed of radicalism for most of the 20th century. Uh, in other words, long after the, the, the first you know, call to San Francisco, which was the gold rush, of course, uh, you had the birth of two important phenomenon in the city that, that forever made it associated in the, you, know, you might say the world's, its reputation in the world. And the first was Isadora Duncan and the birth of modern dance. Um, Isadora Duncan was a world-renowned figure by 1903 and she always referred to her birthplace, San Francisco, as being the source of her inspiration. She was a, a, a feminist, a communist, a revolutionary in, in many ways, but she was, it, rightly, the inspiration of this form of modern dance. And more importantly, the, the modern dance movement took root in San Francisco and spread widely, and so there were many schools and many uh, institutions already thriving uh, by you know the early 
early part of the 20th century. In 1916, the, the U.S. government, in preparation for the uh, uh, entry into World War I, was staging preparedness day bombings throughout the United uh, preparedness day marches throughout the United States. The one in San Francisco was bombed. No one knows who. Tom Mooney and Warren Billings, two socialist labor leaders, were arrested and framed for this um, for this crime, and were sent to prison. Uh, by two years later, uh, workers and uh, radicals throughout the world were demonstrating behind the banners "Free Tom Mooney," and that means in Moscow, that means in Shanghai, that means in Mexico, all over the world, demonstrations were being held to free. Tom Mooney, which he subsequently was, and that's a whole story in itself. But if the thing, if if those two elements had simply been isolated and and never, you know, just ended there, we probably wouldn't be talking about San Francisco now. But the fact is that they didn't. They continued through the 30s. The 1934 general strike, led and inspired by the longshoremen and the their their uh, incorruptible leader Harry Bridges, and the formation of the. International Longshore Warehouse Workers Union and so on, um, obviously carried that torch forward, made San Francisco's reputation as a union town, and um, and w and not only that, a in, in later years after World War II, uh, with the with the red baiting and the the blacklisting that was going on in places like Los Angeles, it became a literal haven for radicals because they could get work on the waterfront. They could actually be protected and and uh, and given employment in a situation where they were you know relatively safe from the, the you know the clutches of McCarthyism and so on. There's a lot more to be said about that, but the point is that those two elements were crucial in laying the foundation in terms of San Francisco itself. The relationship between actually working class audiences who were also supporters of radical or you might say innovative art forms because they were popularized uh, together. And there were linkages through political means, organizations, the Communist Party and others that were were bringing together all of these elements in one place at one time. And this this actually created the conditions where they, uh, the Beats, of course, is one example, the Hungry Eye, a variety of other institutions that were flourishing before the, the this breakthrough or the musical developments in 1965 that laid the basis for what I contend is the most important component of this whole thing and that was that the audience was the show the audiences that came to the to the Fillmore and the Avalon and came to the parks and whatever were the people that actually enabled music to be free for music to break through all of these limitations set by the the music industry and so on and to, to make that connected to the the the, you might say the the generation's general feeling or desire for liberation, but there's something else that's very important. I just have to end on this note because it's this again is one of the worst uh, elements of the of the summer of love distortion, and that is that this what happened in San Francisco and what actually attracted people to it by 1967 was actually a local phenomenon. In other words, these were local people doing local actions in San Francisco for a local audience. The San Francisco meme troupe was appealing to the people who lived in the Bay Area. The, the, the bands themselves were largely, in the beginning, were largely from the Bay Area. A group like Sly and the Family Stone originated in Vallejo, and they were there uh, produce, Sly himself was producing records for, for you know, bands like the Warlocks, who later became the Grateful Dead, or the Great Society, whose songs became the hits for Jefferson Airplane, and so on and so forth. All of this was done on a 
local basis. This was not, you know, seen as like some kind of uh, uh, blockbuster, you know, movie or something like that. It was done as part of a, a local arts and or political movement. And this is what you know, again, tends to get lost in the in the hype and hoopla about the summer of love, and and um, and this is perhaps a good time to stop, and you can you can dive in to all of that. <laughs> well, I'm gonna as I as I like to do, I just like to you know set the tone with some music. So this next song seems like an apt uh, soundtrack for everything we just said. That's 70, yeah. Uh, you touched briefly on LSD, and I was thinking as you were talking about, you know, obviously drugs play a big part of this story, pot, LSD, what, what have you. Youth, uh, you know, San Francisco to me, because I lived there for 25 years, uh, is an excellent climate to be homeless. Not that I was homeless there, but... You know, thousands of kids are coming in in 67, don't have a place to live. It's, it's not the worst place to sleep outdoors, admittedly. I've never actually done that. But, you know, it seems like it was, you know, a convergence of, uh, you know, as your book is about, all of these things. Youth, uh, as you said, a lot of middle class white kids. Um, you know, I wrote a book that's, that's here called Listen Whitey that focuses on the history of the Black Panther Party. And... You know, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale were going over the, the Panthers start in '66, and they're going over to Hate Street in the very beginnings, and and you know they're picking up on this. You know, uh, I just wrote a book that's coming out about Jerry Rubin and the Yippies. You know, and and you know their basic initial premise was let's politicize the hippies, hence the Yippies. Um, 
So I don't really have a specific question as much as that it's, it is an amazing uh, collection of things that all kind of come together. Uh, you know, baby boomers, you know, you've got way more young people than ever before. Um, so anyway, I don't really have a question except to kind of get the dialogue going. And there's several people in this audience, a couple of people anyway, that, that also lived through this and they were there, such as my man Tommy here. Uh, maybe he has a, a thought. Well, actually, if there are any questions, please go ahead. Go ahead. Um, you, know, you talked about the, 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 I guess, the music industry as being an arm of the state. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, take the time has come today. You know, we both know David Rubinson, yeah. the producer. I mean, I don't understand. I don't. I, you know, like that's it. They were extremely influential, both as you know, coming and going kind of. If you, if you want to look at it that way, and 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 the, by the early 1970s, the music industry had to sort of catalog the various places and the ways they were going to market stuff, but. If they if they were a medium of change early, the, all the music, I don't think that the music industry shut down the you know more the end of the draft and that kind of stuff. It just seemed to all happen at the same time. So, can you explain more what you mean with the? Yeah, there are two basic aspects of that. One aspect is actually the foundation of the music industry as a business, which was created largely by two acts. One was the 1909. Copyright Act and the 1917 Supreme Court decision that regulated um, how royalties were going to be collected. Prior to that, there was a music industry selling selling sheet music and piano rolls largely, but it was extremely difficult to um, uh, actually make a profit from it. And those sanctions were given to a couple of companies, RCA Victor who made Victrolas and um, you know people like Westinghouse who were making radios because what they were interested in doing was selling the devices. They weren't actually, music was being given away for free. They didn't actually care. Um, but in return for those sanctions that the government itself was was doing, that obviously the music industry was very happy to perform its function if you if you just think about its relationship to war making, its relationship to you know popularizing songs that were were going to champion the the you know the uh, American um, role in the world at the time. I mean, again, there's a long list of of things that show the relationship between the the state as such, the government and the music industry. But more particularly in terms of the '60s, um, I was interested to discover, and I actually didn't go into this knowing this at all. This is something that came out of research. Um, Just one example, but the extent, I'll just give one example, but the extent of government interference directly in, you know, the lives, the work, the everything of the, of musicians was far greater than most people, certainly I ever knew. But the one example is Buffy St. Marie, who was actually a a very successful artist, um, and she uh, suddenly disappeared. 1970, her, her career was apparently over. Um, and um, she returned sometime in the late 80s and was surprised at an interview she, she gave in a Cincinnati radio station when a DJ started the interview by making an apology on air and saying, I have to apologize before we start this interview for, for suppressing your music. 
And he went on to say that his station program director had received a a memo on White House stationery saying this music deserves to be suppressed. She subsequently went on, uh, to numerous radio stations. Like I don't have the list. This was a anecdote. It was a interview she gave, uh, describing exactly the same thing happening over and over again. This is just one small example of the state controlling broadcasting. Broadcasting being a function of the music industry. You know, the music industry is not just record companies. It's broadcasters. It's publishers. It's the the, the whole kit and caboodle. And um, and of course, it's if it, if it stopped there and there was one sort of anomalous figure, you'd say okay. But in fact, what I discovered, I just so happened to, upon, upon a, a doctoral thesis by a guy at Duke um, in 2013, which uncovered this really vast array of relationships between um, not only the FBI, the obvious, you know, you know, uh, J. Edgar Hoover or whatever, but local. Local police forces, uh, state police forces, and a variety of other you know uh, areas that were coming after people, often disguised as drug busts um, and so on. But he documents the relationship between that, the the effects on people's careers, the fears that people had about ever being able to r record or play again, and so on and so forth. So this is just another manifestation of the relationship between the record business, which was not interested in promoting revolution, and and uh, and the and the state, you know. I mean, in other words, it's a complicated affair because, in fact, the, the the record business had been complicit in an earlier time in suppressing people like the Weavers, who were actually selling lots of records at the time. But you know, folk music was considered commie stuff, so they they were complicit in 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 suppressing people like Pete Seeger and so forth. Just as the music industry, uh, sorry, the movie industry, was complicit in the Hollywood Ten. So that's what I mean by as being an arm of the state. It's a very direct thing. It's not kind of an abstract playing with words. It's actually real people being really punished for their political views by ostensibly free market uh, means. Well, I, uh, I agree with everything you just said, but I would also say you know, the 60s is the era where performers began and are encouraged to write their own songs, right? So the Beatles are certainly one example. You know, Frank Sinatra was not a songwriter. Uh, these guys, the Jefferson Airplane, are, are putting out, you know, pretty controversial stuff on RCA. Mm -hmm. Sly and the Family Stone are putting out Don't Call Me Nigger Whitey on Columbia. Uh, the airplane are generating enough money for RCA that they're given their own in-house label called Grunt, and they can sign and do whatever they want. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a creative freedom that comes out of the 60s for many of these artists that you know kind of continues to this day. Uh, and before that, you, you you know you didn't really have that. Your your A and R man picked a song for you and then gave it to you as the performer, right? So I so. Well, I, again, I'm not uh, agreeing with everything you said, but I think I think there's a, there's a, a certain, you know, creative freedom. Uh, you know, I was just inter, uh, interviewing uh, Bonnie Bramlett from Delaney and Bonnie, mm -hmm. and she was saying, yeah, like at Motown, very few people got to write their own songs, but it was a very big deal when Marvin Gaye finally got to do What's Going On. So I so I think there's an explosion of creative freedom here that kind of contradicts you know, this repression at the same time. Well, it contradicts it, but it was done in opposition to it. That's that's the thing that has to be understood, is that the the, the record industry profited from it, but right. they didn't make it happen. 
As a matter of fact, in many cases, particularly in San Francisco, uh-huh. uh, not exclusively. Right. Don't don't get me wrong. This is not a San Francisco thing. It was a phenomenon throughout the right. uh, the United States and, fr- frankly, for throughout the world because yeah. there were similar similar uh, outbreaks for mm. example tro- tropicalismo in 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 Brazil right. inspired by very similar things and those people went to prison of course in some cases but in That's any right. case yeah. uh, the point is that it was against the norms the structures the mm-hmm. so-called rules that were had been laid down and well established by by the record industry that these people made this stuff mm-hmm. and again you don't have to believe me you can actually read what the what the musicians said themselves about why they made the music the the, the whole episode of Monterey pop and I don't want to leave people in the in, in the dark about this but this this whole mm-hmm. festival thing and this the the writing of the song if you're going to San Francisco and all of that stuff was definitely a concerted effort in 1967 to bring that creativity back into the fold of the of the record industry. Mm-hmm. It was a very deliberate attempt, and a great deal has actually been written by by you know you know you might say musicologists or people commenting on music history right. about what happened to the San Francisco bands that were actually signed at that time. Janis Joplin being the leading example. Sure. Um, so. The the what what's left out of that and and uh, you know I think is absolutely wrong is to give the music industry any credit at all for for the creativity because that came from the musicians yeah and it came from their audiences inspiring them mm-hmm. to write music like that and to mm-hmm. break those rules mm-hmm. and to give them permission in right. a sense well you, you touched on something else uh, that I loved which is which is Bill Graham's booking policies right, right. so you look at those posters and you've got. Roland Kirk with Pink Floyd, or you've got Cream with the Woody Herman Big Band, mm-hmm. right? Since that time period, clubs bend over backwards to make sure that every goddamn band sounds the same. Right. You know, I play in a band, for example, and I'll call a club, and they're like, well, you've got to find two bands that sound just like you, right? God forbid if you had a jazz band and a rock band on the same bill. Right. Uh, and so I think, again, that's one of the exciting things about uh, San Francisco in the 60s was this incredible um, I think there's a great story in, in uh, Buddy, uh, uh, Bill Graham's autobiography where there was a British band I can't remember which one they were I'll say like Deep Purple or somebody right? and every time they would come the drummer would do a long winded drum solo and Bill Graham was like this guy's a putz right so he hires Buddy Rich to open up for this band the next time they come to the Fillmore. And as Buddy hits the stage, he slaps Buddy on the back. He goes, Buddy, give me an extra great, extra long drum solo. Right? <laughs> then as the, as the rock band hits the stage, he slaps that drummer on the back. He goes, dude, I can't wait for your drum solo tonight. He didn't play one. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. <laughs> Yeah. Jim, any thoughts from you? You were around. Yeah, I was more like a uh, little closer to Zelly. Zelly figure out front. And I was there. At the, uh, I went to Cal in seventy seventy four. So I was kind of I was, it's funny because I was going to ask you about the government suppression in this kind of like underground way, which I, I found really interesting. Is the impact of careers like Buffy St. Marie, and, and literally she couldn't get arrested for that moment in time. So right. With her, along with a lot of other talented people. But then, 
corporate America figured out a way that they could sell rebellion, mm -hmm. and I think that the record companies kind of figured out a way to homogenize revolution right. and sort of regurgitate it in a way that it became smooth and it was like accepted rebellious music right. that, that they kind of sold to the rest of the right. country. I just wondered, like, because a lot of bands probably jumped on that rebellion. Right. Uh, I think I think that's a very important question because the the truth is that the what what is really forgotten is what was happening in American culture before this period, and not only the racial segregation of black and white music and you know and how it was marketed and you know pigeonholed and so on and so forth, um, but the fact that actually the government or the music industry together uh, their attitude towards different things, such as folk music, the folk music revival, which was taking place at the same time rock and roll, 1955, 1956. Their attitude towards it was actually, even when it was successful, was to, to keep it down. It was, there, were, there were congressional hearings as, as late as 1963 on the evils of folk music. Now this is this is documented. This is quite true. What happened after and as a result of the 60s was exactly the reversal of that strategy. We're not going to suppress anything. Everything is open. Everyone is free. And in this context, actually Bill Graham plays a, a particular role um, because what Bill Graham and Albert Grossman, who was sort of his mentor, you know, he came in in. You know, he was Bob Dylan's manager, and he came into Monterey Pop with all these great bands from San Francisco, none of which had, were, were known outside of the Bay Area. Only one had a record out, and that was Jefferson Airplane. They, none of them had been signed. They were completely unknown and uh, outside of the Bay Area. But they had to be on the bill because they needed the, the, the cachet. Like no, they weren't getting any airplay at all. They were just playing in the park for free. But it's just how, how would you find out on the other side of the country, I guess? It you didn't. You didn't. You didn't. They, what, what, what the promoters of the festival knew was that San Francisco had already garnered this reputation. And that was word of mouth. And that was people like the Paul Butterfield Blues Band coming in playing hard-ass Chicago blues to an audience in 1966 and having their minds blown to the extent that their second album was called East West and they're doing, it's very far from blues, it's like John Coltrane, Ravi Shankar inspired jams that take up the whole side of a record. And then they moved to San Francisco. So it's those guys, Buddy Guy, James Cotton, all these guys going back to Chicago and say, listen man, this is where it's happening. So this is what's spreading. The other thing to remember is it was all ages. There was no alcohol involved. And so anybody could go. I was going to three nights a week to, to venues when I was 14 and 15 years old. It was okay. Because everywhere else, it was just, you know, coffee shops where it was only coffee and then it was folk music. Rock was too loud. Anything else was too loud. Or it was nightclubs, drinking, 21 years old, punked. So that's one part. But by the time 67 rolls around and you've got Albert Grossman coming in to, to sort of fish in the waters and, and Graham is seeing this and he realizes that if the music industry continues the way it's gonna, going, it's going to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. It's going to, if it imposes its you know, it's dress codes, the uh, swearing is illegal, all these things that they had done to cultivate and control artists prior to that time, it was going to ruin the whole thing. The, le the last thing Bill Graham wanted to do was be parental. 
right? So he devised he devised a system along with Albert Grossman, and I mean they exchanged views uh, that actually they're not really in this for the music business. In fact, they're against the music business. They're here to protect the freedom of artists, artists, messiahs, visionaries. These aren't like. You know, workers who, who you know have to join a union or or uh, work for a living, which is the way most musicians were actually employed in the past. No, well, they had to be in the musicians' union. As a matter of fact, you didn't record without being in the union. You you had a, a union scale and the union. It was it was organized like that. That's out. Now we're gonna make. Out of the union, you could, like a jazz player, that you could, or you could lose your cabaret license, like in New York, and so on. But what 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 Graham did, and what he saw, and what he pioneered, and what was so successful was that these are artists, and he elevated music and musicians to this pinnacle, because he wanted to be like Saul Hurok, you know, an, uh, an impresario of classical music. That was his vision for himself. It was like the music business for chumps. This, I'm I'm a great man. <laughs> no, really, and and this did work. Yeah. I mean. I know you hate Bill Graham, but, you know, like, but, you know, we can't know what's in his heart, per se, because that's just not how humanity works. But I will say that, that the music that he exposed us to in those days was, you know, it, it was as revolutionizing um, a, a force as... You know anything that that became part of the threads of you know your life if you were 18 or 19 years old, and uh, you know those mixed bills when you had you know these blues guys with you know their local bands and stuff, and, and uh, you know in, in my memory, you know by the time that Jeff, the Jefferson Airplane did that God Revolution album, I was pretty much over the. White bands, you know, because they just they did seem to me to be trying to sell it to us, not just be from it. But that was when, you know, the the black musicians became that was the underground you wanted to get to, you know? mm -hmm. so that that uh, you know, from Tower, I mean, the white the white black band Tower Power became hugely popular, but also uh, you know the Motown stuff like '71, mm -hmm. I guess Marvin Gaye put that out, mm -hmm. and. That, I think, was as revolutionizing five years later as those bands that... that Sure, but I I think the problem, and again, it's don't don't take it from me. It's that all the people I interviewed in this book do not give Graham the credit for that. Well, I don't want to argue with that. I just want to talk about. Yeah, but it's important. It's it is important because he did not do that. He that was it's just a matter of fact that he didn't know anything about music. He he took the advice of all the musicians. What I'm saying is that I listen to the music. I don't know, yeah. you know at that point. I mean, I got to know the guy later, but at that point, I was just. This kid who, holy God, look at this music. You know, I saw a bill with Miles Davis and the Grateful Dead, you know, and like that was revolutionizing, you know what I mean? And and so whether or not he was a, a jerk about it, I wouldn't have had the foggiest idea to, to know. But man, the music that, as you said, I mean, that we were exposed to was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. uh, back to Sherry's question, you know. After the Woodstock weekend, basically that Monday morning, advertising people, madmen, yeah. all got together and they said, 
there's money here. So that's when you start seeing Volkswagen bug commercials with flowers. That's when Levi's started changing their image and so on and so forth. That, so that was a whole... Right. That's right. That's right. But the, but the Woodstock weekend showed Madison Avenue that there was money to be made by taking regular products, you know, toothpaste tube and putting putting a few flowers on the cap to make it cool. I mean, that happened. Yeah. Which I think is, is just diluted somewhat of the original. I mean, it's like today when you see... Uh, a young kid wearing sort of a, a Ramones t-shirt or a CBGB's t-shirt and they don't really even know what that is. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like that evolution of um, the selling of a movement, you know. I'm convinced that that classic Ramones shirt, we've all seen it, has sold way more copies than all the Ramones albums combined. I Yeah, go ahead. One of the problems is when, as you know, when uh, Monterey Pop was organized, who was the chief organizer, John Phillips? He looked at LA and, and said, This, you know, the mamas and papas and that music is just terrible. Pile on what we have and use San Francisco to sell our music. And then two years later, so said, That's what happened. But he had the worst of all intentions when he organized it Watch your back as you leave the yeah. door. No, but 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 what what I, I think substantive about that, and again, the rec, the record is is not you know what you're saying could be a matter of taste, but the the thing is that there are a number of books that you know interviews with Lou Adler, who was the other producer of the show, and with John Phillips, um, as well as with Ralph Gleason and other people that were you know in San Francisco itself, that actually describe the process by which which this took place and are, are quite frank about it. And um, and the, the the reason why what you what you're describing took place and the the role that actually the San Francisco bands, in particular the Grateful Dead, they they were just one, but the bands had a completely anti-commercial attitude. It did not want to play this festival, but they were being talked into it by you know even people like Ralph Gleason on the basis of the festival being a benefit. They were no no one was going to get paid. No one was paid, as a matter of fact, um, on the basis of it being given to the Diggers or some other community organization and. As fate would have it, it was somebody absconded with the money, and of course that that was the that was the that was the end of that. Um, but the point is that there was this is a a matter of record. It's not something I made up, and it's it definitely has nothing to do with my attitude towards Bill Graham personally. I have to say, Bill Graham was actually always nice to me. I didn't personally hate him, but the fact is what he represents was a force of the counter-revolution. There's no question about that. That historically, specifically, what you're talking about, 1973. 
is when Bill started the Days on the Green series, which was the, really the beginning of the end, the co-optation of the festival and putting it in a sports stadium with three bands that sound the same was exactly the antithesis of what it had, had given San Francisco its reputation. Right. And well, you know, and again, it's you know, that is as as others that I spoke to on the in the course of the you know interviews I did and the you know talking about it, that is the way capitalism works. And if it had, you know, Bill's excuse would be if I don't do it, somebody else will. But the point is, what responsibility does a person actually have for the role that they actually play? And the role that he actually played was to appear to come from within the ranks of the movement. That was that was where his prestige actually came from, and that. Was was, if you want to use the word authentic, that was inauthentic to the max. Not to mention, you know, the, when you read the book, you'll read the interview Taj Mahal gave me, and the relationship Taj Mahal had with Bill Graham was, was let's just say, controversial, to say the least. Um, and so, you know, it's not a question of personalities per se, but the roles, the, the actual significance of, the, of, of what was done when people want to understand how did something so good end up being co-opted or crushed or whatever. There were both elements. There, were, there was definitely, uh, you know, more repression than has ever been acknowledged. As I said, it was a, a two, 2013, this doctoral thesis that I read came out. That's a long time after the fact. You know, and, and one of the things that he said at the beginning of this thesis, and I'm, you, you can read it quoted in the book, I'll, I'll send you a copy of it uh, by email, is that it, he was amazed in doing his research how little had been written about it so far. You know, that he was actually doing path-breaking research. And I remember reading that and thinking, yeah, why hasn't anybody done this? I mean, I, I found a couple of other books, uh, including Parental, Parental Advisory. You know that book by Eric Knutsom. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's about censorship in, in, Amer in American popular music. And there he documents what J. Edgar Hoover did with Phil Oaks and stuff like this. But it, even in that context, it's a it sounds a little bit like um, isolated cases, whereas this, this uh, doctoral thesis I'm referring to gives the you know you might say the overall the the, the effect of overall um, you know not suppression in the sense of people being hauled off to jail but the threat was constantly there people like the last poets and the fugs commenting on not being able to get book book uh, Santa Monica civil Audit civic auditorium or not being able to to you know hold a show somewhere because the police had said told the the venue operator not to rent to these guys or the last poets getting but one of the members of the last poets being busted for drugs you know not specifically what they were saying but we're not going to let you perform you know things like that and I think that that's very important to understand because it's not simply a matter of, you know, uh, what, what egotistical rock stars being bought off or bribed and giving up on the revolution. It wasn't that simple. You know, there were some, for sure. There were a lot of people who weren't political in the first place, but sang one song that might have been political, but that, that didn't characterize their own commitment or their own, um, you know, what their life path or what they wanted to do. Um, so there are a lot of reasons and, and a lot of, uh, 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 you know, forces at work that led to the, the the defeat of the revolution which is why I picked the the year 1975 you know there were were actually very specific reasons for that date I mean you can argue 
about the dates, uh, stretching it or not. But I, I chose that date specifically for, for a political reason, and that was that was when the you know the United States was finally driven out of Vietnam completely, and it was also the year that Sly Stone uh, and the, the Sly and the Family Stone put out their last album and did their final tour. They were over too, and they had sort of started as well as ended this phase in San Francisco. But also, they were open for by the whalers. And in a sense, the, the torch was being passed to Jamaica and to London, you know, and what happened in London with, uh, you know, the Sex Pistols and the Clash and so forth uh, in 76, 77, 78 was really, you know, you might say the shifting of the of the, the, the musical political access, access to, to these other places. There's a, there's a, did you, you probably read Charles Perry's History yeah. of Haight-Ashbury? Yeah. He talks about, in his opinion, one of the things that sort of destroyed Haight-Ashbury as the 60s move into the 70s, less LSD and pot, more cocaine and heroin. And mm-hmm. that the whole thing just becomes darker. Right. You know. Uh, actually, every single person that I talked to said the same thing, yeah. uh, and it was actually meth right. and junk, not mm-hmm. not coke. But it, okay. it, in other words, '67 marked a, 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 a an important year, which was exactly the op for the opposite reasons of the summer of love, and yeah. that was the the sudden influx of meth and, and junk in mm-hmm. in the. In, in Hate Street, and it, interestingly enough, there was a very famous case called uh, the murder of Super Spade, which anyone who was there would certainly know was a front page news. He was a black pot dealer, and he was found in a you know a, a, an oil tank out by Alcatraz um, because there'd been some you know uh, turf, gang, war. turf war or something, um, and you know this was the. This was what really was happening in the hate. It was not this sort of, it was a low-grade civil war involving not only drugs, but police assaults right. and so on and so forth. And it was, at the same time, you know, was there, this creative explosion was happening, there was enormous turmoil. And remember, the other thing is that this was not, conf- it was never confined to the hate ashbury right. That's another kind of distortion. Most of what was happening was happening in, in neighborhoods throughout the city, in particular the Mission District, where Santana came out of and Malo and a whole scene of Latin rock mm-hmm. and the murals and the posters and all the other things that were, you know, characterized the era were just as much a product of that community as, mm-hmm. as, as the hate, you yeah. know, uh, not to mention Oakland and, and so on right. and so forth. But the, the point being that, again, this focus, um, you know, rock revolution, uh, hate Ashbury, summer of love, all of this stuff d- diverts attention from a much wider and much more significant phenomenon, both musically and politically. Mm-hmm. And, and that does not diminish how important it was, but it, it, it does put it in, a, in a, 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 you know, this broader context. Uh, I... Uh just finished researching this book, as I mentioned about the Yippies, and one of my favorite moments was as I'm talking to John Sinclair, the MC5, and we're talking about this era, we're talking about the airplane, and I said, you know, how come the airplane don't get any respect for these great political songs 40 years later? And John took a big, long puff off of a joint, and he goes, that's because they spent the rest of the 70s trying to be Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, could be. Uh, any other questions while we wrap this up? Uh, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh. No, no, you, you didn't speak yet. Just a second. Well, mine is basically uh, a comment. I recently read about the um, purple that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. They happen to be in Vienna. I think it was Vienna. 
and uh, there was a fire, there was a concert, and there were some other bigger bands playing. There was a fire, and then there was a lake nearby, Lake Geneva. Oh, that's in Montreux. Yeah, that was, that was in Montreux. Right. Yes. That's where the song, Smoke yeah. on the Water. Smoke on the Water. That's right, literally. That's because the the, the 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 theater was burning down. Yeah. Zappa was playing. All right. Zappa was there. Yeah, yeah. While that was going on. Right. Wow. Yeah. Go ahead, Howard. When, when Ralph Gleason came back from talking to Lou Adler, he said it's over. And it would be the same thing in the East when people talked to Jerry Wexler. I mean, those two guys, Lou Adler and Jerry Wexler, killed the revolution. Yeah. <laughs> two, two biggest turns in rock that, that should be the thesis of your next book, Howard. The Two Biggest Turds of the Revolution will be the, will the title of the book. Well, I want to thank everybody for coming. No, thank you, Pat. Thank I want you. to thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.